KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. I'm just angry. I'm like, I might never be involved in racing again. And meanders my dad and tells me that I gave up, that I quit because he got sick. And he's like, nobody, not me, not your mother, not Tony Stewart, not Jeff Gordon, got to where they are today because they sat on their ass and did nothing. And that's what you've done. And our guest this week is Stephen Malazzi. He is a Swedesboro native who recently made his NASCAR Camping World Truck Series debut as he raced at Mid-Ohio. Still a college student, still trying to make his way in the racing world. Has an extensive go-kart background. And Stephen, thanks so much for the time. Matt, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's been a crazy, crazy few weeks to say the least. As we're talking here in late July, it was earlier this month, you finally made your debut at Mid-Ohio. What was that like, racing a truck under the NASCAR flag? Oh, it's, uh, it's all I've ever dreamed of since I was a little kid. It's one of those things that you grow up never expecting to do, and if it actually happens, you're beside yourself with, with so many emotions that you can't describe. I, I got out of the truck. Josh was the first person to come over to me, my team under Josh Rayum. Gives me a hug. Tears start to flow. Then, you know, you see your family, your friends. Then I saw my mom, and then I saw my dad. And when I hugged my dad, there are some, there are some great shots of me hugging my dad. And it's just, it's a river, man. It's, it's really emotional because you never expect that you could do that. And we had a roller coaster of a weekend, to say the least. So it was, uh, it was a lot. It was, it was unbelievable. And you finished 22nd out of, I think it was like 36. That's for a first time. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> a lot, a lot of things too. One, I had never shifted a manual transmission in a stock car before down at a road course. So that's that's a lot of learning. You have to learn to slot the gear in at the right time and and kind of balance that. Two, I had never driven a truck before, so that was my first experience in a truck. Three, I had never driven Mid Ohio before. That's a whole brand new racetrack that we're learning. Four, we wrecked the truck in practice, so that was uh, that was a big comeback story. And five, we started last. We were actually running 18th with two to go, and then we got into a little little scuffle with my teammate, of all people, to get into a, to a uh, little debacle with there, who was 15 laps down at the time after breaking a lower control arm in the first stage of the race. So that was really frustrating, and we ended up going off track. I'm thinking, the race is done. We're toast. Throw straight off into the gravel trap. Get it going out of the—and if you get stuck in NASCAR in the gravel trap, you're, it's a caution, and you got to get towed out. You usually lose a couple laps. You lose a lot of track position. You're done. Keep my foot in it. Get it out of the gravel trap, but I stall the truck. I'm like, this is it. I spent my whole life working for this moment, and I am going to end up in the infield grass with the checkered flag. I'm never going to see it. On comes Josh. He's like, Malaz. He's like, believe in the truck. I'm like— what the hell does that even mean, believe in the truck? I'm like, okay, here we go one more time. Flip the ignition, flip the starter, and it comes to life. I'm like, holy moly. I'm like, thank the Lord this thing started. Because we were running down 17th. We were, we were an on pace for a top half finish. And our team, small budget organization, has a season best finish of 17th. And we were on pace to match that in that equipment for the first time, like in my debut. So to finish 22nd, that's a that's a pretty unbelievable finish. When you're in getting ready for the race, when I say getting ready, you're in the seat and it's just about go time. What's going through your head? What's 
in your head as you're in the seat before the race starts at Mid-Ohio? Either getting strapped in or sitting on pit road. Standing there for the national anthem was a big one. All these moments kind of replayed. It was like, I, <laughs> one was when I, uh, one of the moments that I thought about was when I had beaten all my friends. We did, we did a 32 race set in Mario Kart. And I had beaten them in the first 30, finished first in all 30. Highest difficulty, three other friends, so three actual people. And the 31st, I lost. And I got so mad at my friend, I threw him out of the house. <laughs> so, like, all these racing moments, all the passion had kind of replayed. And I looked over, and we had finagled too many garage passes because we knew how big this was going to be for friends, for family, for whoever we could. I actually had some of my best friends. You need more than one spotter at a road course because there's not one place where you can see all, mm-hmm. all the corners. So my corner spotters were my best friends growing up. Having them in your ear when you're doing this, looking over and seeing all of your friends and family just standing there in pit road, having Josh stand there in pit road. I was just trying not to let them down. You mentioned first time driving a truck as someone who was only driven cars and only driven cars like on highways. Are we talking apples and oranges different driving a truck stock car race as opposed to just a car? I I don't know that I'd say it's it's apples to oranges. They're definitely a little different aerodynamically. It's more like a, a red apple versus a green apple. Okay. More so. They're very similar, but there's there's still some differences. And um the horsepower ratio is pretty similar. Like they're they're high horsepower engines. They're you know very beefy, very meaty. The transmissions are very bulky. Like they, they don't feel all that different. But at the same time, I think what's really different is is the trucks and the road courses. They want to go fast, but they are really loose. Like you you give it too much throttle, you're going around. It would be like driving in flooded water on 76 after a, a heavy thunderstorm you know like you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get a little loose and and no matter how much throttle you use so you got to be really careful with your foot racing has always been a big part of your life i mentioned you grew up in swedesboro and you were growing up big go-kart guy so the story behind that is it, it all started when i was really young i actually had a speech impediment growing up i didn't really talk a lot in complete sentences um, which is funny because now my mother says that I, I never shut up. But the one thing I would always do is is when cars would drive by when we'd be in the car, and I'm talking three, maybe mm-hmm. four years old, I would name the brand. And I, and, I, and I got this repetition in my head where I could actually name cars from like a quarter mile, half mile away. Then that grew into a love for, for toy cars, die cast kind of stuff, which then grew into a love for Mario Kart, which then grew into a love for Need for Speed and NASCAR Thunder 2004, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So I win the championship in, in the NASCAR video game one day. I am eight years old, didn't understand that it was on rookie difficulty, that I'm really not that good. I just, you know, turned mm-hmm. damage off and, and drove along the wall for <laughs> <laughs> however many laps. Walk upstairs out of my basement and see my dad. And I'm like, Dad, I am, I am really good at these video games. I bet you I would be phenomenal at this stuff in real life. Hey, guys, that's not really how it works. So... A couple months later, it's my ninth birthday, and we walked to a to a go kart track in Newcastle, Delaware. It was called Mid Atlantic Grand Prix. Now it's called Extreme Zone. It's still there. It still exists. It's right off thirteen. Mm-hmm. We go out, and we are really good for first time driver for not having experience. We run pretty quick, and 
that was it. That was actually the end. We didn't go back for another year until my 10th birthday party when me and all of my friends went and we go and I crush all of my friends, destroy them. And that, that was the greatest feeling in the world. And at that <laughs> point, <laughs> right? Cause, cause for me growing up, I, I turned a little bit when I got to middle school, high school, I actually was sort of athletic then, but growing up, I was the lead, I was the kid who was always picked last mm-hmm. for basketball, you know? So being the best at something that was athletically based felt really good. And I, and I wanted to hang on to that. I also obviously had this love for cars and speed and, and an adrenaline junkie in my own right. So my dad and I started going back and we got to know the owners. We got to know the employees. We got to know all these people. By the end of the time, I think to this day, I have about 1,100 sessions at that go-kart track. That at $20 a session is a lot of money to spend on indoor rental racing. Then there were a few caveats to that, right? Like there was a point when, where we would go on Wednesday nights and it was $50 unlimited racing. And we do 20 races a night. My dad would drop me off at four after school and would come back at 10 when they closed. And I was there for six hours. I would do every single race repetitiously, just running laps at this indoor rental track. Then we raced so much that the owner, Bill, Talks to me and my dad and says, we're going to offer you a VIP program where you're going to pay me 250 bucks a month and we'll let your kids show up and race whenever he wants. And let me tell you, we were the reason they also got rid of the VIP program <laughs> uh, because Bill lost money. But he, he was a great dude and he always helped us out. And he actually gave me my first job. I worked for Bill. But we did that for about four years. And when I turned 13, my dad is sick of it. He's like, this is so boring for me. I don't even want to come and watch you race anymore because I know you're going to win. And it's just like, what are we doing? Why are we racing the same racetrack over and over and over again? So we go up to a racetrack in Cuddybeckville, New York, Oakland Valley Race Park. And we test out a competitive go-kart. And a lot of people don't know what competitive go-karts are. Well, a rental go-kart. Tops out about 40, maybe 45 miles an hour, depending on where you are. Has bumpers around it. Mm -hmm. Very bulky, very big. Competitive go-karts are stripped down, aerodynamic. There's no bumpers. So if you hit somebody, you're hitting a wheel that's spinning. It's like F1. You're going to probably flip or or make some pretty nasty contact, spend a lot of money. They can go 80 or 90. And if you get a shifter, they can go 100 and 110. We go and we do a test day with this team and we love it. And we're like, this is what we're going to do. So we buy an equipment, buy a trailer, buy all this stuff, and next season we start racing. Within a few years, we are national front runners. We are arguably the best rain racer in the country. Um, and it was really just me and my dad. Like we, he, He's a lawyer from Ambler, Pennsylvania. He learned how to do all this stuff on a go-kart. He could, he could do anything on a go-kart at this point in his life. And he learned how to do it all over the span of about a year and a half so we could, so we could race together and afford it. We would stay at like Motel Sixes, a lot of McDonald's dollar menu dinners. Like every dollar we spent, he it's not that he didn't spend a lot of money. He spent close to six figures. But on racing, that's not a lot of money. Right. Like comparatively In the speaking, context. exactly. Right. We were we were up against the years that I raced. Matt and Nicholas Latifi. Nicholas Latifi is a current Formula One driver for Williams, and his dad is the owner of Sofina Foods, which is like the biggest retail or food distribution retail chain in in Canada, and like. He's worth a billion dollars, you know, maybe more than that. Like he is a multi, multi, multi-millionaire, billionaire at that. Absolutely loaded. And they would bring literally a NASCAR-sized hauler to the racetrack just for just for the two kids. Meanwhile, we had a 
12 by 15, 12 by 10 trailer that we would tow around mm-hmm. on the back of my dad's GMC Acadia. Like it was the, the level of difference is, is so stout. And, and that's, that's my biggest problem with racing is there's no easy way for kids to get into right. it. If you're, if you're a, a poor inner city kid and you want to get into basketball, there's courts all over the city of Philadelphia. You, you find a basketball, you can go play. You know, you want to toss a football around, you can, you can literally do it in the middle of the road if you wanted to. If you want to race go-karts or cars, if you don't have 15, 20 grand to get you off the ground, you're done. Right. And it's, and it's like, it's frustrating because I've seen a lot of kids who have talent. One of my biggest, one of my long-time racing rivals, she raced at another indoor track called Lehigh Valley Grand Prix out in Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania. And she was not as fortunate as I was. But she could always beat me in a rental car. We'd go back and forth all the time. One of the few people I'd ever met, her name is Brenna, only people I'd ever met who could do this. And, like, we've been working hard this season and the past couple of seasons to get her into more competitive outdoor equipment. But it's such a struggle when you don't have the financial capital to do it. It, it makes you wonder, like, what would you see in NASCAR? Who would really be at the top right. in these in these motorsports organizations if if money weren't a factor? But I digress. We were national. We were national level competitors. Top of our game. Dad gets diagnosed with cancer. Stage four, non-small cell lung cancer. And this is 2016. This is 2016. Guy never smoked a day in his life. I, I don't even think, as far as I'm concerned, um, he maybe bummed a cigarette too back in high school, but like never smoked, mm-hmm. never ever. And this was in the summer of 16. He developed a cough. That's all it was. It was a little tiny cough. Go to the doctor, say it's allergies. You know, they give him allergy medicine, strong stuff. Doesn't work. Then they're like, you probably had a virus. You're going to be okay. Like, we're going to give you some antivirals, see if we can knock it out. We'll get going. September rolls around. It's still there. So they decide they're going to bring him in for some scans. Scans come back. A lot of fluid. It's called a pleural fusion. A lot of fluid in his lungs. They drain the fluid. They run some tests. And one day in October, family doctor shows up at our front door and is distraught. He looks at my mother, and I'm sitting in the kitchen, looks at my mother, and he goes, Melissa, I am so sorry, and breaks down. And um, we later found out that the prognosis was about six, maybe nine months, if we were lucky. And um, that was a lot to take. That's, you know— from if you want it from a career standpoint, that's the end of your racing career, right? Because your dad's your biggest supporter. He was my sponsor, my mechanic, yeah, that, that my best friend. That's like, the thing about like something like this is <clears throat> it's it is devastating, heartbreaking news on multiple fronts. Right. There is the, the it's your father, and yeah. he's sick. There is also he is such a big part of your dream and your passion, and it's going to be impossible to continue that. And then there was just. You know, you as a teenager dealing with this, you know, something that completely rips your world in yeah. two. I, 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 it's hard to get your head around what the implications of this. And did that hit you immediately or was that a kind of a, a slowly unfolding emotional disaster for you? It was a, it was a pretty I, – I actually remember this distinctly. It was a pretty quick unfold. I, I went out maybe a day later with a baseball bat and started swinging at my trailer. Um, I was 16. I was a sophomore in high school, right? Like the thing I would use to cope with a traumatic event like this would have been racing, right? Like mm-hmm. it, you would go to the track and pound laps. Now I have lost racing. I have lost racing 
my dad, who was also the closest relationship I've had in my life, like <clears throat> pretty unquestionably, it's 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 my dad. Um, and, you know, when he spent thousands of miles driving all across the country because we've raced in California, Canada, Florida, Portugal, he's done all this stuff. You, you spend a lot of time in the car. You talk a lot. You, you get close. Um, and like it's racing was the fundamental piece of the relationship between my dad and I. So when you lose that, you realize you're losing your dad. You're a sophomore, 16-year-old maturing kid in high school. That's a lot to take in. About a week, maybe two after his diagnosis, there was a, a big race in Vegas. And what they do is they put a go-kart track in the parking lot of a casino. This year it was the Rio, right on the strip, and have a huge go-kart race. It is it is one of the biggest events year in and year out on, on the karting schedule. Hundreds of people all around show up, multiple different countries. We had never won a national race at this point. We go out there, and there's a race where we go from fifth to first on the outside with three corners to go to take the checkered flag by zero Point zero zero two, like that. I think it's two. It was either two one hundredth or two one thousandth of a second in an absolute drag race to the line. And we had decided only to do that race because we had already paid for it. Like, why would we waste it? Let's go. We could use a family, mm-hmm. a family thing here to, to hang our hats on. And we go out there and do that. And I had thought that was going to be the end of my career. Like, I, I was like, we ended on a high. And, um, a lot, of, a lot happened over the next six months. First off, my dad survived and did pretty okay for the diagnosis, right? I also matured a lot. I, I had never really recognized a lot of the opportunities that I'd been given. And, like, I kind of took racing for granted. And, he, and even growing up, felt a little spurned that I didn't get more opportunities. My dad getting sick kind of made me realize that I, I was a little bit of an ass about it. Um, he had given me everything and given me a lot and, and had worked hard to do it. And working seven to seven or seven to eight, five days a week, and then flying out to Las Vegas for a, a go-kart race, that's a big ask for anybody. So I, I realized that I had to work harder for what I wanted. And we had agreed that in 2017, there wouldn't be a lot of racing, if any. But I had worked out a deal with a team owner that I had grown to know and love who had told me that he would let me race for basically free. And he he's a primo organization, like one of the best of the best. He owns a, a real top-tier operation. And it, it is usually 15 grand a race to go with them. I think my dad and I maybe paid two. Our mechanic, Chris Bogart, he'd been with me since day one. He took a reduced rate to come with us and and worked for us in order to help out so we could do this race. And we had had a dream together in karting. And that dream was to go to world finals. And every year, Rotax, the karting company that we drove the engine for, they hold what's called world finals every year. It's 450 drivers, 55 different countries. They give brand new go-karts and brand new engines to every single competitor. They all fly to a track, rotates countries every year. That year, it was Portugal. Every country gets a different amount of representatives based on the size. So the U.S. gets, I think we had three in my class that year. And turned out nationals were going to be in our backyard that season. Like New Jersey Motorsports Park, 35 minutes down the road from us. And we decided we were going to do it. And we went out and we podiumed. Dot three finish. We ended up getting a world finals ticket. 
Something else pretty significant also happened that weekend. I freaked out at the son of the president of NASCAR. So Steve Phelps is the president of like the CEO of NASCAR. He is the big executive. And that is that is an executive standpoint, like not NASCAR stock car racing, NASCAR, the company, right, which owns a lot more than, than stock cars. Jack, his kid, was was a little far off the pace that weekend. And I had known Jack prior. We we actually we, he's he's a northeast kid. We raced together in a lot of events. But we were under the same tent, and he had actually turned down on me in a very high speed section of the racetrack, not knowing I was there, and and damn near killed us both. Like it was it was nasty. It could have been really bad. We're lucky to both have walked away from that without a lot of damage. But I, I basically freaked out at him, said a lot of really, really vulgar things to him when we got off the racetrack. <laughs> And that kind of really spawned a close relationship with with Jack and I, and it's uh, it's pretty cool because I I actually texted Steve after my debut, and we actually got got to have a conversation like about how much it meant to me that I got to race a NASCAR, and that's not something a lot of people get to do. There are people who have been driving a NASCAR for years who probably would kill for for a text from from mm-hmm. Steve Phelps. I just think that's a little cool tidbit in the in the journey of of how this happened. And then, like, Jack and I are actually friends. Like, we, we actually rekindled at Daytona. He's working for Barstool Sports, doing a lot of cool stuff with them. So getting to see that uh, that kind of these karting relationships come back when you make it big is a really cool thing. So we ended up getting the World Finals ticket. Back to the story. I, I have a lot of tangents that I can go on here, man. <laughs> they can go on for hours. And we get to go to Portugal. Um, and that that was, again, one of those points where I'm like, this is it. This is where we stopped. I did horribly in Portugal. We're not even going to talk about the actual race. I had a flu, 104-degree fever. I think there was literally one point where I, 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 I was so sick, I pissed myself like in my sleep. It was, it was that bad. I had to sleep through practice sessions because I was so physically ill, I could hardly hold the steering wheel. We were like, again, that's it. And in 2018, I actually stepped away. I did a couple one-off local races for fun. Uh, uh, I had switched mainly to commentating. And um, I focused a lot on driver coaching, driver coaching, a lot of young kids who were getting into the sport at around the same time that I got into the sport because I felt like I had a lot of valuable feedback and it paid, it paid pretty well for a, for a 17 year old kid. So the gears really switched and I love the community. So I stayed involved, but that was, that was it for racing for four years, man. Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with Steven Malazzi right after this. And we are back on one-on-one. Our guest this week is Stephen Malazzi. Recently made his NASCAR truck racing debut. He's a Swedesboro native. Were there still nights when you're kind of looking up at the ceiling, you know, picturing things, or you'd hear a finish of a race and you'd go, man, well, why didn't you just, if I was there, I would have just taken the inside and, you know, like, or were you <laughs> comfortable with that book being closed? I think to everyone I had spoken to externally, I seemed okay with it. Like I didn't really talk about it that much. I had bought a, an older Dodge Challenger <laughs> to kind of fill the void. It was an SRT8 as my first car. And I think that that covered up a lot of the, <laughs> the missing racing, longing for it. But internally, it, it burned. Like it was, it was bad. And I, and I, I don't know how much I ever acknowledged it, but there would be times where we'd watch a race or practice. Like I watch NASCAR practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how many people do that? Yeah. <laughs> not a lot, not a lot. But I was so I was so frustrated because I had always felt like I could do better. So these years go by. I start college at the University of Virginia. Then COVID hits, and we come back home, 
There's not a lot to do. I had saved up maybe 15 or 20 grand of my own money. And I walk in. It's, it's literally March 17th or 18th, 2020. It is like right after COVID hits. And I walk in the living room to talk to my dad about what's going to happen and whatever. And he's looking at a stock portfolio. And it is ugly. It is all red. It is like big bucks lost. And my dad, who now works, who now works for Aramark, looks at me and goes, it's a great time for you to invest. That is a really optimistic look for a guy who's losing a lot of money right now. So I do it and I throw it all in. And within six or seven months, we're talking, I've got close to six figures in this account. And I had realized that I could either be financially stable for the rest of my life and have a Roth IRA that I never have to touch again and retire at 50. Or or (laughs) I could blow it all in six months and go after this dream of racing that I'd always wanted. And I, I asked myself a question and I sat back and I thought, In 20 years, if I'm working a good job, I'm going to a great school. I have intentions to go to law school. If I, if I end up where I want to be in life, am I really going to regret spending that a hundred grand or am I really going to regret never having gone after? Cause if you're 41, you're not going after NASCAR. You're, you know, windows closed. Yep. Windows closed. But now I'm, I'm 21 and I've got a chance to do it. And what really happened is in, in January of 21. A few days after my birthday, I'm just angry. I, a lot of news is coming out about Daytona in a month um, with the 500, and I'm reading all these stories. And I'm like, I might never be involved in racing again. Ian meanders my dad to ask me. I'm, about, I'm literally, I think, packing to get to go back to school. And he looks at me and he goes, what the hell is wrong with you? He's like, why, why are you giving everybody attitude? Why are you so grumpy? What's up? I'm like, dad, I never, I never got my chance. I'm like... And yes, by the way, six months to live, dad is around five years later. That is, that is real, and he's still alive today, doing great. He gets scans every three months, get treatment every three weeks. He's And just as an aside, yeah. what the treatment, whatever they did, took, like, or, you know, what are we to cause? I mean, the way it's framed, six months, usually doctors aren't throwing that out willy-nilly, like, you know, so... What what worked here? Do you, or are they even short? Yeah, less than five percent make it to five years. Less. Um, so we are we are really fortunate. It's it's one of those things where he has the perfect genetic mutation to be in all these drug trials that they're releasing for this type of cancer. So every every time a treatment stops working, we move down the line, and it's progressing the way that traditionally stage four non small cell lung cancer would. So all these drug trials that are in development right now, he qualifies for. And that, I, all the guys at Penn Medicine obviously are to thank because they're some of the best doctors in the country. He continues to to be able to get a different type of treatment every time the last one stops working. The chemotherapy in, in the original combination of drugs that they used actually stopped working at about six months, which is what they expected mm-hmm. to happen. But then they just found alternative options and they haven't stopped working for him since. Um, so I think he's gone through four or five different drugs at this point. We try, we try our best not to think about what the next right. what the next course of options is. He's here now. He's here and- now. Still going. He's he's literally as we speak across the building from us, doing his day job. So he looks at me while I'm sitting in my room pack for school and tells me that I gave up, that I quit because he got sick. And he's like, nobody, not me, not your mother, not Tony Stewart, not Jeff Gordon. Got to where they are today because they sat on their ass and did nothing. And that's what you've done. 
It's like you, like I. It's not that we're not proud of you. It's not that we don't love you. We're you're. And at the time, I, I was. I still do sometimes. I work for ESPN and the ACC network, and I call some games for them uh, down at UVA. I do smaller college sports. I'm not doing basketball, football. I'm doing field hockey, soccer, lacrosse. But that stuff where you that's can a find, great line you, on the resume. Exactly. You can find you can find record of me calling games mm-hmm. that I have. I I knew nothing about going in, and I had to learn, you know, the ins and outs of those sports. Been there. Um, I think everybody in sports media has been there at some point yeah. where they've where they've had to cover a sport that they have no idea what they're talking about. You're covering racing right now, <laughs> um, so he's just like, if you want to race, go. He's like, figure it out. He's like, everybody does it. I'm like, you know what? You are the worst. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, you know exactly what buttons to push just to get me angry about this stuff. And now I'm not going to sleep the next six days because I'm going to be freaking angry that you said this to me. So I start sending emails. And I mean to anybody and everybody who will listen. Guys, to to low-level people at NASCAR, to Rick Hendrick, got emails from Stephen Malazzi at some point. And one of the truck team owners, who I won't name because I, I don't feel like he did anything wrong and I feel like he was a good guy and I feel like the story – some people might take in a negative light, actually answers. And he calls me, he talks to me, and he has come up with a plan to uh, to get me out to California to race for him in what he called his driver development program. 250 grand for 40 races is what this program cost. I'm like, I don't have that money. So I had started working to find sponsorship. But this wasn't even an officially NASCAR-sanctioned series. It was just a driver development program to help. And the winner of said series actually would get a free truck race with with the team that had had put on the show. So one of the people I emailed at the end of my list was the ex-Philadelphia 76ers commentator Mark Zumoff. And anybody who knows Mark knows that Mark is one of the nicest people you ever meet. And in 2017, I had just walked, like, literally only a few months after my dad had gotten sick. It might have been 18. It might have been a year. I, I'm not sure. But it was one of those years. I had literally just walked up to him at a game. Uh, I was sitting courtside. It was my birthday present. And um, told him my story. said, hey, I'm commentating sports. I'm, I'm a retired race car driver. Like, I, I want to model my commentary after you. You are so emphatic. Love it. He's like, kid, love the story. He's like. I got to run. He's like, but here's my email address. And I want you to email me every few months and, and keep me updated. He's like, can't promise you'll get, you'll get the six paragraph response, but I will always answer you. And he's like, in some capacity, I want to hear how you do. And I want to hear what happens. So I emailed him about this NASCAR opportunity. And he said, that is phenomenal. He's like, really proud of you. He's like, I have no idea what anything about NASCAR He's like, but let me refer you to somebody I know at NBC Sports with me who does. First me to a guy named Michael Carey. And Michael, Philly guy, through and through, go out, we get some cheesesteaks. We talked, and he attaches me on another email chain with Josh Rayum, the guy who at the beginning we addressed as my owner, and some Italian dude named Peter Salino. We could talk and speculate for hours about who Peter Salino is. I have no idea to this day. Haven't figured it out. He's a really off the radar guy. Very clearly knows a lot of people and has a good chunk of change. Josh never answers the email. Peter does. And not only does he answer, but about five minutes after the initial email gets sent, Peter calls me. 
and says, do not give blank blank an effing dime. I'm like, okay, why? He's like, just don't. He's like, the whole thing is going to be a mess. He's like, you're going to lose all your money and you'll never touch a steering wheel in NASCAR. And lo and behold, Peter was right. I mean, I think maybe four drivers did the driver development program and they all kind of got screwed. And I don't know that it's, that it's necessarily the owner's fault. Again, I want to emphasize that I don't know that he was ill-intentioned. Just didn't work. I just don't think it worked. At the end of the phone call, Peter basically says, pack your bags. You're coming to Charlotte. And within five, three, maybe five days, here I am walking into some man's house, not Peter's, some landlord tenant guy, moving all my stuff in. And I had moved out of UVA before the semester even ended. Uh, We were all still on Zoom. So I was like, I'll take my classes from North Carolina, I guess. Monday morning, Peter calls me, sends me an address in the city, says, come pick him up. I go and I get him. He is about five, six, thick beard, big glasses. And I mean, just a talkative, no filter kind of guy. Puts it an address in my GPS and says, let's go. The address he'd put in was the shop for Ring Brothers Racing. And we walk. He says, sit here. Walks out. In walks Josh Rayum. Looks at me and goes, who the hell are you? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing here. Please just explain to me what you want me to do and I'll leave. In walks Peter. He goes, Josh, get this kid a job. He's going to drive for you one day. And I spent that day on wrapping race trucks, taking the vinyl off of them. And then I was an inaugural member of RBR's intern program. And Josh and I came to know each other. He came to know my story. Josh came to the realization that we had had a very similar relationship with our fathers and an identical background growing up. He had actually started karting in the same brand, Rotax karting, that I had. He went to world finals as a South Africa representative. And um, that hit home for him. And he's like, Malaz, I'm going to work to get you in a race car. So then in the summer, we bought our own late model. We started the Rain Brothers Racing Driver Development Program. Ironic that I ended up in a driver development program anyway. And we basically did the bare minimum to get approved to run in the truck series. Um, I did spend a whole summer working for him. These days were long. It was like I'd show up at the shop at 8, leave at around 4 or 5, and I'd drive straight to Domino's. And I'd deliver from 6 to 12, 6 to 2 in the morning sometimes. Go to sleep, sometimes as late as 3 a.m., wake up at 7, do it all again. And I think Josh had recognized that. And he looked at me one day, a couple weeks before I'm in Ohio. And he's not a sentimental guy. He doesn't cry a lot. But I can see the tears welling up in his eyes. He goes, Malaz, I think this is going to be a top five proudest moment for me as, a, as an NASCAR owner. He's like, I, I know what this means to you. And to help you do it, that means a lot. And he'd actually sent me a text right before I got in the truck um, so that I would see it after the race that I didn't see until about a day later. And that made me cry. Um, he told me how proud he was of me and how nobody could ever take this away from me. I don't know. I, I don't know why Josh decided to do it. He said a lot of people reach out to him. And obviously he's not, he's not loaded. He's a small budget team owner, right? He's like, you just got a feeling. And he did it. Time to take another break. We will continue our chat with Stephen Malazzi right after this. This is one-on-one. And we are back on 101, continuing our conversation with Stephen Malazzi, who recently made his debut in the NASCAR Truck Series. I am not a risk taker, personally. And I don't know that I could have done what you did. 
are you young and it's close enough to the dream that we're going to make it work and I'm not going to think too hard. It's like a you go through both. Yeah. It's a wave, right? Like I think on Saturday when I was when I was moving in and my car is loaded with crap from UVA. I remember sitting on the floor looking at this empty room, looking at this empty house and thinking, what the hell am I doing? And just sitting back and questioning, like, is it like this something we should do? <laughs> I'm like, what the other, the other line of reasoning is though, kids would kill for the opportunity right. to race in NASCAR. And this guy is clearly involved, clearly knows what he's talking about. And if I don't, Take this opportunity. I've, I what am I going to do? Keep sending emails. I'm right. done with sending emails. This is it. I'm here. I'm in Charlotte. Push comes to shove. I'll figure it out. I always have, and I always will. I'll keep digging. It, it definitely occurred to me, like, what am I doing? But kind of got to push that mm-hmm. to the back burner. It, it hasn't really set in yet that I did that. Like that. <laughs> I've always been a gambling man. I always take a risk, and I always will. But that one is borderline idiotic. <laughs> To me, and like I sit, I, I sit and I think about it sometimes. I'm like, "What the hell is wrong with me? What, what was I doing?" I guess you could say it all worked out in the end, right? Like, we did it, we got it done, and we made we made some mistakes along the way. Like the way we went about starting the driver development program was pretty disastrous. Like it was, we ended up buying a clunker. We bought an engine that was too small. We were supposed to buy a 604. We bought a 602. We were really not competitive. And we basically rode around just not wrecking equipment so we could get approved. Like, that was it. That was what we did. And that was bad. And in any sport, when you're sitting around as a placeholder just trying to run laps, it is so frustrating when you can't be competitive. And that's for any athlete. Mm -hmm. Like, could you imagine if you had the worst defense in the NFL and as a quarterback you're just chucking up bombs every every play because you're trying to keep up with the defense that lets 45 points up? You'd be pissed all the time. That's basically what we were doing. We were throwing Hail Marys hoping for the best. It was exhausting. Man, I don't think I could do it again. If I had to do that again, I don't know that I'd have it in me. There were points in the summer where my love for racing were gone. It was just obliterated. And there were some highlights, right? Like I met my my longtime idol, Michael McDowell. is my favorite NASCAR driver. He has been for a long time. He has a very hard-nosed career. He raced for a lot of start and park teams, teams that would literally enter the race start the race, run five laps, park it, and get the purse money. That's what they do. He did that for years, you know, kept going, worked his way from equipment that was not not drivable to, okay, really, really bad, then went to, okay, underfunded, back marker, then went to the king of the back markers, then won the Daytona 500 with him, and now this year has a career record in top, he's, he's like seventh or eighth in NASCAR in top tens this year. That's like the mentality that I want to have. You got to keep finding a way to make it happen. Find a way to get behind the wheel. Make it work. I know that seeing the way my dad reacted to mid-Ohio and seeing the way that he reacted to the late model racing that he got to see, it made it all worth it for me at the end of the day. Um, I've always told people, and I think this is 100% true, I set out to do this for my dad. I did it now. Because my dad would be around to see it. And if I wait even five years until I'm out of law school, maybe a little more financially stable, he might not be. Right. We've already extended our welcome. We're already on borrow time by five and a half years mm-hmm. at this point. So how much longer do I want to, you know, test God and see how long I can wait? 
So my goal has always been and will always be one NASCAR start. And then if I never pick up a steering wheel again, I'll be okay as long as my dad's around to see it. Ideally, I'd love to keep doing it. But with the financial state of what it costs to run a NASCAR, I understand that if it doesn't happen again, that's that's okay. I did something that only 3,300 people. That's in what the, I was going to say. In, it, right. You're in a very, with just one race, right. incredibly elite company. Right. Exactly. In the history of the world, you know, 3,300 people have made a NASCAR start. And you think about it, you think about it this way, right? There's 52 people on an NFL roster. Mm-hmm. There's 32 NFL teams. That's 1,600 people in the NFL in a year, right? And think about how often those players rotate. That's not including roster moves, new draftees, practice squad players. Only 3,300 people have ever picked up a NASCAR steering wheel in their lives and done it in one of the three national series. Because there's only 114 seats between the three top national divisions at any given moment. And if you think of guys like Kevin Harvick, who have been in NASCAR for 20 years, they've occupied one or two of those seats at any given moment over the past two decades. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Kurt Busch, Kyle Busch, Kevin Harvick, Denny Hamlin, all these guys have taken up 4% of what can exist in NASCAR over the past 20 years. So to be one of those people who made a start, to complete this dream as as a Sweetsboro, New Jersey native who didn't expect to go anywhere with it, with my dad around to see it, that's pretty special. There are no plans right now for for you to drive another race, and that's still a, a chapter to be written, right? Yeah, yeah. You have to find sponsorship. Mm-hmm. You have to find a, a big corporation or somebody who really likes your story to find you, basically. That exact phrase is something that I say all the time. Because if you want... Bottom of the barrel equipment in the truck series, you're going to spend 35 or 40 grand. And like you're going to run as one of the slowest race cars on the track, no matter what you do. Right. If you want equipment that can compete in the top half, probably going to spend 75 or 80. If you want equipment that can win, at the very least, you're spending 125. If you really want to win, like you want the best of the best. And this is one race. This is one race. This is not this is a yearly one, budget. This, this is, is one event. You're probably going to spend 150 to 160 grand if you want the best of the best equipment. So that, that if you do some quick math, 23 races a year, 150 grand a race, we'll say. You're, t- you're well you're into talking, seven figures. You're talking three million bucks. Yeah. Maybe four. Um, if you wreck a lot of, if wreck a lot of trucks, you know. So <clears throat> not a lot of people have four million bucks to spend. And like we talked about at the beginning, that's why so many rich kids end up in NASCAR. NASCAR used to be a sport full of southern rural dudes who were, you know, had parents who worked in factories. They themselves were probably high school educated at the very best. They had a dream of of stardom and making it big. And the only way they knew how was to wheel a race car around. They built their own equipment. They drove their own equipment and they figured it out. And those people had such a, a dog eat dog mentality to them and people loved it think about dale earnhardt that's mm-hmm. i mean that's the that's the exemplary de facto way to go when you're thinking about the sport of nascar dale earnhardt came from nothing but now you think of somebody like ricky stenhouse jr stenhouse is loaded mm-hmm. he'd be fine if he didn't race in nascar and so would a lot of the people and like not not again to take away from what they've done. No, but it is what it is. But it is what it is, right? Like like I'm not saying anything about Stenhouse as a driver or anything about his talent. You need a certain amount of 
capital to be able to get into the door. Exactly. And I think my goal, and it's always been difficult, is to find a way to make it happen that will allow me to succeed in NASCAR. And one day, I am hoping to make it to the point where I can repay all the people who helped me figure it out. Steve Malazzi, this was great. Thanks so much for coming in. Matt, thanks for having me. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank Stephen Malazzi for coming in studio for the interview this week. Now, if you like this show and you want to help us out, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon ten sixty. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.